0: We're less than 30 days out from the most important election of our lives. The stakes could not be higher. And for weeks, Donald Trump has been tweeting about suburban housewives. On the surface, his rants about the suburbs might seem like a distraction from the serious issues at hand. But what Trump is signaling is important. What he's telling us is that he's pinning his re-election hopes, once again, on white women. It's a political playbook straight out of 1968. Agitate white women about the imagined threat of urban violence and low-income housing invading their white picket fence neighborhoods. Will white women take the bait? This is White Picket Fence, a podcast about the fractured and often frustrating politics of white women. I'm Julie Kohler, a writer and gender justice advocate. I'm also a white woman. I've been writing about white women's politics since shortly after the 2016 election when so many of us realized that we had not done enough, not merely in that election, but in building a country that reflected the values we professed to hold. It was a moment that prompted many, myself included, to revisit our personal political stories and to realize that they were seriously flawed. Growing up in a suburb of Minneapolis, St. Paul, Minnesota, our yard was often littered with election signs, We were a family of volunteers, activists, and all-around political junkies. My dad had spent 13 years in a Catholic religious order before leaving to marry my mom. My mother was a biology and women's studies professor. I was the kind of nerdy kid who subscribed to Ms. Magazine and dreamed about running for office. Holiday dinners were usually spent in deep political conversation with my parents, my uncle, who was an ex-priest, and my aunt, a former nun. And although most of my family had grown pretty disenchanted with the Catholic Church, social justice was still a strong guiding force. I started really tuning into presidential politics when Walter Mondale, former Vice President and Minnesota Senator, won the Democratic nomination in 1984. He chose Geraldine Ferraro as his running mate. I was 10 years old, and I was ecstatic, certain that there was about to be a woman in the White House. Inspired by Ferraro, I launched my own campaign that year for class student council representative. When I won, my teacher announced it as the official start of my political career. On election day, I ran home from school proudly informing my parents that the Mondale-Ferraro ticket had won a resounding victory in my class's mock election. I settled in to watch election returns, confident that I was about to witness history in the making. I did but not the kind I was expecting. The map is entirely, totally red for Reagan. Now, in just a minute, are- 1984 was a landslide re-election for Ronald Reagan. In fact, it was such a blowout that the electoral map that night showed only two blue specks in a sea of red, Minnesota and Washington DC. I remember staring in shock at the solidly red map on TV. It was the first time I realized that my world wasn't the world. It was a crushing disappointment for a young kid. But that election instilled in me something else, a sense of political specialness. The story I told myself was that my state, my community, even my family was different. We believed in the common good. We invested in things like public schools, a social safety net, a clean environment. We were a welcoming state. Racial injustice? That was something that happened in other parts of the country. In Minnesota, We did things right. I grew up and moved away. I never did make good on my childhood dream of running for office. But I built a career working to advance social change and gender justice. I wrote about women and politics and families. My political analysis became more nuanced than the one I held when I was 10. But even as I developed an understanding of how deep and structural the problems facing our nation are, I retained that sense of specialness. That by growing up in the place that I did, in the time that I did, I had some unique insight into what good politics looked like. I'm not sure that there was one moment that permanently disabused me of that notion. But like many of us, 2016 turned my world upside down. On election day, I went to the polls with my then two-year-old son. After casting my vote, I took a selfie holding my son in my arms. In the picture, we are both beaming at the camera wearing I Voted stickers. Things had come full circle. That night, I was certain that my son would witness the triumph that had eluded me as a child, a woman in the White House, Hillary Clinton as the first woman president. Trump's election, and specifically the support he received from a majority of white women, came as a shock to me that night. But it wasn't the only event of 2016 that made me seriously question my political story. A few months earlier, Philando Castile was killed by a police officer during a routine traffic stop. His murder happened about a mile away from my childhood home, and the following year, the officer who shot him was acquitted of all charges. The truth is, the community of my childhood is plagued with the same injustice that exists everywhere. There was nothing special about us, or our politics. As our nation was struggling to understand how we could have elected a man like Donald Trump president, I was struggling to rewrite a political story of my own. White Picket Fence isn't a podcast just about conservative white women. This is a podcast about all of us. How white womanhood in America has been constructed, how it's evolved, and how it's affected our politics. It's a podcast about how white women have fallen short and how we need to step up. We'll explore why white women have, throughout history, aligned their politics not with women of color, but with white men. Why Trump's election came as such a shock to so many of us. Why we were so late to the game. And most importantly, what we're going to do about it. This season on White Picket Fence. What we've seen over history is that without actually reckoning with how, in particular, white women have contributed to, perpetuated, or been complicit with white supremacy and have not grappled with white privilege, that shows up in fragile solidarities that are easily broken. Who can be asleep is a big question when we talk about who, who gets awakened to anger. The things that have made white women angry are the moments where they realize that they're not protected from or inoculated against inequity and injustice. Why is it taking you seven years, a pandemic and a crumbling economy and an idiotic president for you to get on board? And then the question is, how much patience are you gonna have for it? Like how long is this gonna last? There will be a moment where they will come back to the default and say, we have done enough. We are tired of talking about race. Women of color want to win. And it's pretty clear that we don't win alone and it has to be done together. We live in a multiracial democracy, and I I do believe that if anyone is going to figure out how to show up right, it will be a process that happens among women first. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.